U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy today urged people to do their part to help in the war against disinformation around the COVID-19 pandemic. We talked to Kim Onwin, the CEO of the Hawaii Blood Bank, about what it's doing to allay fears about the coronavirus and the vaccine to donors and recipients of our blood supply. I went to your website and I saw that people have questions about whether they've been just freshly vaccinated. Are they cleared? Are they okay to donate blood? So so what's the information you want to get out there about that? They are A-OK, perfectly safe to donate blood if you've been vaccinated and there is no wait time. For the concern that someone might have that maybe they don't want to get the vaccine, is there a, an issue with the blood products that they get at the blood bank? Right now, there's no data to support that there's a risk or a concern to date. FDA, Food and Drug Administration, recently put out an affirmation that from their point of view, it is safe for a blood donor to donate without a wait period. And also, the state of Hawaii, as many other states, right now, over half of blood donors in the state of Hawaii have been vaccinated for their own health and safety. And so if we didn't take blood donors who were vaccinated, patients would die due to lack of blood, and that would not be safe. And so for all of those reasons, we actively welcome blood donors who have been vaccinated. And we ourselves at the Blood Bank of Hawaii, our staff are vaccinated to protect the health and safety of our donors as well as ourselves. And, you know, that's important, too, because this pandemic certainly posed many challenges, you know, for an organization like yours that relies on the contact with the public to donate blood for our community. Absolutely. When the pandemic first hit, if you remember, one of the challenges for us is what would happen to patients in our hospitals if donors feared for their own safety coming into a blood drive, coming into the Blood Bank of Hawaii to volunteer to roll up their sleeves. And so we made a commitment here at Blood Bank of Hawaii. Our commitment, no donor would catch COVID from donating blood. No staff member would catch COVID from coming into work at Blood Bank of Hawaii. And no patient would contract COVID from receiving a blood donation. And knock on wood, we have made good on that commitment, and we will continue to make good on that commitment to the best of our ability. And what can you share with our listeners just about the demand for blood at this time? Because as we see things open up, you know, the COVID restrictions relax, there are more people out there traveling, more people out there doing things that might put them at risk, and they may need blood. How are our stores? I think our stores are good, but we are going into the dog days of summer. And I'm always on my fingers and toenails going into summer because usually summertime, our collections dip 15%. Why? Schools are out. People go on vacation and they have other things to think about other than donation. And so we need donors to step up. That's number one. Number two, our hospitals are busier than ever. There was so much and there is so much of a backlog of procedures from the pent-up demand for procedures with COVID-19 that there is an increase of demand for blood, not just in Hawaii, but all throughout the nation. And so there have been many, many critical shortages of blood media appeals all throughout this country. So if we are short in Hawaii, we cannot rely on imports from the mainland. Hawaii has to take care of Hawaii's needs. So our supply, you know, how much do we generally have on hand? People will be shocked. The state of Hawaii has any one point in time no more than one week's supply of red cells, no more than three days' supply of platelets. And so we must have 150 to 200 donors walk in our doors and roll up their sleeves every day. Tell us about your 
your blood drives. Earlier I saw that you went around, you know, island by island, right, uh, reaching out to the potential donors. You know, w- what are some uh, drives that you've got scheduled? For the summer times, we have uh, some amazing partnerships. The first partnership that we have is with Special Olympics. And so for the summertime, every donation that uh, we get, Blood Bank of Hawaii is making a donation to Special Olympics to provide equipment. Another amazing partnership that we have is with our union, Every Drop Counts. We are also going to our neighbor islands once a month. And so those are some of the key uh, Lifesaver Club partnerships that we have. Is there anything that you think you learned from this pandemic? Absolutely. Here's one thing that opened up our eyes, and that is, number one, that we didn't recognize until this pandemic hit us that our blood donors constitute a critical and essential disaster workforce here in the state. They happen to be a volunteer, unpaid, per diem, part-time workforce, but they are recognized by the Homeland Security Administration as critical and essential workforce. And so when we are locked down and we called that critical and essential workforce stood up and said, we are here to report to work. And we want to thank every blood donor for doing that. So um, that is an amazing thing. The second thing is out of crisis, there are opportunities. And our convalescent plasma program was an example of that. And so the state of Hawaii was able to collect and produce 3,000 doses of this life-saving product and this drug, where at a time that we had really hardly any other drug available. And so then the plasma program, is that put on hold? Actually, the plasma program was a huge success. And so as a result, we still have a very healthy inventory. In the beginning, we had to import from the mainland, and we did so well that we ended up supporting our national stockpile by sending out, and we still have it today. So I would say that the program was successful. And I believe there's still research projects underway, right, that use that plasma as we try and learn more about the coronavirus and its impact on our community. That's right. So Blood Bank of Hawaii was able to participate in the Mayo Clinic project, and even today we are participant in a nationwide year-and-a-half study with the CDC looking at vaccination and prior exposures of COVID-19 for blood donors and collaborating with Department of Health for that. So COVID-19, as, as much of a crisis as it was, also provided some opportunities for us to participate and contribute to public health. And are you hearing that the fears about the vaccine, the vaccine hesitancy, are impacting patients who are maybe fearful of getting the vaccine through a blood transfusion? Fortunately, I'm proud to, to be working and living in the state of Hawaii. I think Hawaii made so many right decisions. We started out very strong. I think that we are tapering off a bit. So for us in Hawaii, I think we've got to keep up that strong work. We've got to continue to increase vaccine acceptance and continue to do everything we can to increase vaccination, increase access to vaccines. For us, keep up that blood supply and we're going to continue to open up the state because I firmly believe that public health means economic health for us, and Blood Bank of Hawaii is doing everything it can to contribute. So the good news with the vaccines is that the mRNA vaccines go right into the immune system, and they produce, they they cause a production and a great boost in the production of antibodies. And so if there's a concern about whether the mRNA or the virus goes in the blood, I can allay those concerns. There's no virus that goes in the blood. So that's number one. So the mRNA vaccines don't have virus in it. There's no transmission of COVID virus through blood transfusion. That's number one. 
Uh, number two, the passage of antibodies to the virus, uh, those antibodies are protective. And so whether antibodies come from a recovered donor, so that's convalescent plasma, or those antibodies, uh, if they're made by a vaccination, and that goes into the blood, um, there's now plenty of data, millions and millions of blood donation. Um, there's not uh, scientific data, to my knowledge, that uh, there's harm at this point. And there's now um, data that the red cells, the plasma, and the platelets continue to provide that therapeutic benefit that they always have. So I, I'd like to allay fears that any public has that we are continuing to treat patients and we see benefit from whether it be um, treating obstetric hemorrhage, traumas, uh, we are continuing to see all of those benefits from blood transfusion. Have you seen a demand just with all the uh, influx of the visitors? And I know there have been all these rescues around the state, but uh, I don't know. Has the demand gone up just as the visitor count goes up as well? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. We've, we've never seen our hospitals so busy. When you hear all of these uh, accidents, uh, please, think of, please think of donating blood because when you hear those sirens uh, and those ambulances and you see on, on TV about these accidents, you better believe it, we do get calls for blood. And so, yes, we are busier than ever here at the Blood Bank of Hawaii. That was Kim Wen-Win, CEO of the Blood Bank of Hawaii, talking about the best information available about COVID-19 and our blood supply. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we are testing your knowledge of the famous Golden Arches. McDonald's first touched down in Ainahaina on Oahu in 1968. The instant popularity of their burgers, fries, and creamy desserts led, the, led to restaurants popping up around the island and eventually on the neighbor islands. Today, there are over 70 locations in our state. One thing that makes Hawaii's McDonald's restaurants unique are the items on their menu that can only be purchased here, like Spam breakfast powders, haupia pie, and this deep-fried dessert. At one time, all McDonald's locations in the United States served this dessert, but a decision made by the company in 1992 took it off menus. When Hawaii residents didn't enjoy the baked replacement, there was a push to bring back the original. Can you name this crispy dessert that is now only available at Hawaii McDonald's restaurants? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com.
It's now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about the passing of former Hawaii lawmaker Bob Nakata. Good morning, Chad. Hey, good morning, Catherine. How are you today? Good, but very sad to learn mm. uh, that he died this yeah. week. 80 years old, passed away on Oahu. Um, and Bob Nakata, the Reverend Bob Nakata, well, he was... Um, I mean, there's a reason why we wrote a remembrance about him, why there was he was featured in the Star Advertiser. It's because he had a pretty remarkable career and had a lot of impact on, on people, particularly people that, that have struggled, marginalized groups. You know, as you know, he fought for homelessness, for affordable housing, or fought to rather to mitigate homelessness to help folks out who, who need to get housing. Uh, he fought for the minimum wage, something that we're still struggling with, as well as homelessness, affordable housing. But um, I think the thing I remember most about him was sort of this soft, quiet demeanor, right? I, 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 when I was first working at HPR, he had already served in the House and the Senate. Mm-hmm. But I remember whenever I tried to interview him, I always had to lean in real closely with my microphone so I could, so I could hear him. Or if he was testifying, I always had to make sure I had my microphone close to him because he had this deliberative, quiet, slow way of talking. He didn't waste any words. Uh, that's what I remember most about Bob as well as the, uh, the issues that he was so passionate about. Yeah, I mean, he was an effective lawmaker. He didn't pound the tables, you know. He he wasn't sort of dramatic <laughs> like that. But uh, there you know, are he, a few people like that at the ledge. Yes. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you know, he did command respect, um, uh, you know, from the lawmakers, from his colleagues, and and he was out there fighting uh, even after uh, he stepped back from elected office. Right. In fact, I, I I'm certain that his his background in the House and the Senate, the 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 colleagues that he he knew, the loyalties that he developed, helped him get legislation passed. And he's being remembered in no small part for what we all called the Bob Nakata bill. It wasn't actually the Bob Nakata bill, yes. but it was a 2018 piece of legislation. Something like $200 million was poured into the state's rental housing trust fund, uh, um, as well as helping other areas, agencies that are helping out folks with affordable housing and, and homelessness. That was a big victory. I think it was Senator Donovan Dela Cruz who uh, who gave him that uh, gave him that unofficial title, or rather the bill, the unofficial title, because he was there. He was there every single hearing, uh, lobbying not only in, in front of the, the public, but also behind closed doors. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that day, and he said, Bob, you know, we heard you. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, and, you know, he, he was t- uh, tireless, you know. Uh, he was uh, always out there with the Faith Action for Community Equity Group, you know, FACE. Uh, right, right. And, uh, you know, what surprised me, and this is one of the things you find out um, after someone passes, uh, and, they, of course, you don't fully appreciate it unless you knew, just how fascinating his personal history was. I didn't know that he had a bachelor's and a master's in physics. I, I would not have kept physics from UH Manoa. I, I, you know, I never heard him talk about it. And then after that, he goes to Divinity School, a Union Theological Seminar in, in New York City. And this is in the late 60s and 70s, and and I had I didn't really realize that he had spent time there, which include doing volunteer work in the Bronx and, and some other areas. The things you find out about someone only after they have passed. Yeah, well, I know he was you know active at uh, Kukua Kalihi Valley back there. Yes. I mean, just oh gosh, you know, just as a as a as a reverend, he was just out there helping. Uh, helping the flock, helping the people. Right. Uh, keep the country country, the North Shore, uh, if you will, anti-development movements, life of the land, of course, Henry Curtis and involved with energy and, and sustainability. By the way, uh, there's an oral biography uh, UH has posted. There's a link to it in my story. Here's one of the details I did not include in the story I wrote about him. He actually met Martin Luther King Jr. like in the late 50s and early 60s when he was at UH. He was, uh, Bob was with the Wesley Foundation, the Methodist campus, Methodist campus um, there at UH. And he also met James Farmer, the founder of the Congress on Racial Equity. I mean, well, it's quite a, quite a lot of people to meet uh, when you're going to college like that. Clearly had an influence on his later career. Or yeah. careers, I would say, plural, right? <laughs> yeah, and you and I are richer because um, yes. we uh, we covered him during his time at the legis- legislature, uh, you know, advocating in front of those lawmakers and then being one himself. He will be yeah, missed. Rest in peace, uh, the Reverend Bob Nakata. Yes, thank you so much, Chad.
That Thanks, was Catherine. that was politics and opinion editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch and Sunday brunch at the Homa Cafe, along with evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Details at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Belle Ruth Knapperstack, creator and producer of Health Journeys. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about staying well with guided imagery. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. You're listening to The Conversation on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Savannah Harriman-Pote. And I'm Russell Subiono. We've got a choral story for you. But it's not this kind of story. The Great Barrier Reef is the world's largest. It's brightly colored, swarming with fish and wildlife. But recently, marine heat waves have been killing off large sections of the reef. No offense intended to NPR's Merritt Kennedy. Huge fans of your work here. And needless to say... Normally, when coral makes headlines, it's not good news. But this is a fun story, we promise. A really fun story. Because scientist Mary Hagedern is the antidote to your coral bad news burnout. Hi, nice, nice to, meet, to you. meet you. This Hi. is Russell. Hi, Russell. I'm Mary. Thank you so much for taking the sure, time today. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> right. Mary is a marine biologist at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute and the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. She runs a Hagedern lab on Moku Loe, or Coconut Island, where they are working to save coral species using, get this, cryopreservation, which is what I think they did to Walt Disney's body. Yeah, that's probably a myth, but cryopreservation is very real. It's been a part of human fertility treatments for the past 50 years or so. Clinics are able to freeze human sperm or eggs. Same principle, but applied to coral. Mary offered to show us around her lab. So we, you know, started thinking about cryopreservation about 17 years ago when we first came to Coconut Island. And the goal was really to protect the genetic diversity and species diversity of coral reefs. And we thought, well, maybe cryopreservation could help with this. So we started freezing sperm, just like you can freeze human sperm. Human sperm was first frozen in 1960s. But we had to develop the science ourselves and our technology. There were no, like, go to the store and buy this kind of freezer to do coral sperm. We had to create them ourselves, and we now 3D print them all, so, which is good because before we made them out of flip-flops, believe me. <laughs> they were not flip-flops. Oh, my God, that was, a, that was model number one. So today now, with our colleagues around the world, we have frozen 48 species. We have some from the Great Barrier Reef, the Caribbean, Hawaii, French Polynesia, and the Gulf of Mexico. And there are about a 1,000 or so species of corals in the world, so we have a ways to go in terms of sperm cryopreservation. And that was just step one. We can also now freeze coral larvae. So this is like freezing human embryos. and But they're much bigger than human embryos. Think Mercury, the planet Mercury next to Jupiter. Okay, that's how different they are. It's like a big puzzle that Mary and her team are trying to put together. In order to effectively preserve a reef, you need to preserve all of its parts. Another puzzle piece is the coral's symbionts. They're the internal algae that give coral its color. And they absorb their algae early on in their life stage, and it feeds them. When coral bleach, or the water becomes too warm, they give up their symbionts, and they have this sort of bone-white color. They're not dead. 
it's like you know the invisible man when you can look through his skin and see his organs it's the same kind of thing but if they don't get their symbionts back within about 10 weeks they will die the symbionts feed them so it's like saying okay you cannot eat for the next 12 weeks you know how how are you going to survive you know it's you're going to lose fat you're going to lose nutrients there's damage that happens to the coral when they go through this stressful event even if they live so if you don't have these guys and doesn't matter how many cryopreserved larvae you have you're not going to be able to grow them out these are key jessica baumeister is a postdoctorate scholar in the hagedern lab she's been running point on the protocol to preserve the symbionts so when i was redesigning that protocol to be able to cryopreserve the symbionts again I think I spent an entire year where week after week I preserved them, checked them the next day, and they were dead. So it's been a very mentally hard year um, to kind of keep trying again and just changing a little bit to kind of see how things were going and, and getting the data that I needed to know what to change. Um, and when it worked, it really worked from one day to the next. The next full moon, we have all the mushroom corals we'll be reproducing and they, all those larvae are larvae that will be looking for symbionts in their first days. And so we're gonna actually get them to fertilize in our tanks and make sure they have absolutely no exposure to symbionts so that we can give them the ones that we wanna give them. And we're gonna give them some of our cryopreserved symbionts. And if they take them up and keep them, we know that our protocol is perfect, basically. You might have seen the bottle of champagne on the table, on the kitchen table. It's uh, the reward if it works. And a lot has been working for the Hagerdern lab lately. There were so many areas, so many steps along the way where we could have failed, and we didn't. And it was just completely surprising. But I think in this whole journey of doing the cryopreservation, the science has just proved right every single time. If we get the right combination of, you know, variables and we put them together, it just works. And it's, it's magic. Of all the things Mary and her team shared with us, she seemed most excited about these pressure transducers. They look kind of like aluminum salt shakers. But very heavy. Yeah, very heavy aluminum salt shakers. Except instead of salt, they're full of antifreeze. By pressurizing the chamber, no ice can form. We're hoping that in the next couple months, we're going to be able to thaw things about this size. That's a coral fragment roughly the size of an almond for folks listening at home. So this will allow us to go anywhere, at any time, collect coral, make tiny little fragments of them, and freeze them. And it'll save the coral, it'll save its symbionts, and there's a, there's an, a microbial community that lives on the coral. So the whole thing will be there. And this, is, to me, is perhaps the strongest restoration um, uh, process that we have coming out of the lab right now, it will, it will transform. We'll be able in the next five years to rapidly train people and, and go around the world and really just put, put them away. We can absolutely put reefs away for the future if need be. Speaking of, Jessica, along with intern Mariko Quinn, offered to show us the piece de resistance of the lab, the Coral Bank. Picture a giant propane tank filled with liquid nitrogen. And here it is. So we have a gigantic lid which is not made to be fully sealed because liquid nitrogen is always going to expand a little bit. Um, if we seal it, we're creating a bomb, which we don't want to do. <laughs> um, but in here, we've got six, six big towers where we can stock a lot of samples in. And once we put it back down, Once you put it back down, then everything is stored at minus 185 degrees Celsius. So we can keep it like that for years, decades, um, for as long as we need it. And that bank can hold hundreds of samples at a time. And at some point, it will get shipped off to a facility in Colorado that's more secure. So no one can ever, ever steal them. <laughs> and then when they're ready to use those samples, we just warm them up using lasers. <laughs> You know, Russell, I got to say, I think part of the reason why I loved reporting on this story, I feel like it's so rare to talk to people in this field who have such optimism for the future. I agree. But, you know, while we were there, there was this question that just kept rolling around in my head. 
what is the point of all of this, all of this incredible effort, if we're not first addressing the factors that are damaging the reef in the first place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was born in 98, which according to NOAA was the year of the first global mass bleaching event. The narrative of coral sustaining damage has been going on for my entire life. It's really hard to think about things getting better. And uh, I was born a lot earlier than that, <laughs> but we don't need to dwell there. I, in my lifetime, I've spent time on the coral. Growing up, I was either snorkeling or I was diving and I was helping to provide for my family. And so I definitely have a vested interest in making sure or encouraging any effort to preserve the corals that I know help sustain many of the local people here. So I would love to see corals preserved, not just for the future, but for future generations as well. You know, I mean, obviously you wouldn't go to the, to the, all this effort to freeze this stuff and put it out into reefs that are dying. A lot of the damage for the Great Barrier Reef and certainly for Florida happened long before climate change. It, it was all local causes, sedimentation, pollution, nutrients, all that, those sorts of things. And it happens here. We still do not address that. Um, yeah, I certainly do get depressed and there, there are days when I was just like, why am I doing this? Um, but no, I think, you know, I think technology can help. I mean, the great thing about this is we can stick them away in a tank and, you know, maybe a thousand years from now people will, will say, yeah, that, that was a good idea back then. Let's, let's bring those out. I don't know. Every person does th their thing, right? And this is mine. And um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just... I'm happy that the science is working for this. I'm happy there are options for the future. I think of my nieces and nephews. I don't have any children. I want them to be able to see a coral reef at some point. And that's what drives me more than anything else. It's the most magical place on earth, a coral reef. And every person on earth should be able to see one if they want. Bye, Turtle Island. Thanks to Mary Hagedern, Jessica Baumeister, and intern Mariko Quinn for the tour of their awesome lab. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Keep looking out. That was the conversation. Savannah Harriman-Pote and Russell Sobiono reporting from Windward, Oahu. on our show and thought to yourself, oh, I've got to say something about that. Share it with us via our talkback line. Here's an email we received after yesterday's interview with Maui Councilmember Yukile Sugimura on drought conditions in the upcountry area. The author asked us uh, to withhold his name. He wrote, Aloha, we are farmers in Kula. Councilwoman Sugimura's interview and responses were off base. We've been hammering the council about access deer for at least a decade with no progress except explosive growth of the populations. We've suggested solutions over and over and don't get anywhere. We need more action, not another study. Similarly, we have made proposals to increase water storage from the wet season. Drilling more wells will only negatively impact the water table. Too many straws in the glass. And raise our water rates through electrical costs of pumping. Political inaction has been the bane of our island. And after our show on the 100th anniversary of the Hawaiian Homestead Commission Act on July 9th, we received this voicemail. Okay, good morning, Gus, over on the Big Island, Javi. Uh, I was listening to your program yesterday, and, um, you know, the, the sad thing about it is, is the thousand wrongs don't make a right. The land was stolen, the Hawaiian land was stolen from the queen. The great Mahali, Mahali was a joke. And here we have all these, like, disenfranchised Hawaiians waiting in line for land. I mean, that, that's unconscionable. 
It's a sin against humanity. And, and we let these guys, the guys that are heading the whole uh, Hawaiian affair thing, just blab on. And the Hawaiians are sitting here in jail because they're angry. I'm angry. The guy on the phone yesterday from Kauai was angry. We're angry. This is a, a farce. The land was stolen from the Hawaiians, and we owe them. The Kanaka, Maoli, we owe them. We owe them. We owe the Hawaiians. Thank you. And after our segment on the Hawaii Tourism Authority visitor dashboard use of Uber Media tracking software on our July 6th show, Ruth Yender emailed this. How does the HTA guest discern residents versus visitors? I live here but have an out-of-state area code for my cell phone. So if it's based on area code, it seems that the data could be quite flawed. Well, we received a response from HTA, which said the software is much more sophisticated. It doesn't track by where the number was originally from. It looks at your common daytime and common nighttime location to determine which county you live in. So this person with the mainland area code now living in Hawaii would show up as a Hawaii resident. And a Big Island listener left this voicemail after our live call-in show discussing public access on June 15th. This is Daniel calling from Volcano. Uh, I have a comment with regard to Kahana Beach uh, that is a nationally famous nude beach. I just received a book entitled Over 200 Proofs uh, That Social Nudity is Good for You. And uh, a, a truth is a scientific thesis uh, that makes a very uh, makes a very provable argument. And uh, Mayor uh, Mitch Ross is having the police uh, climb down to Kahana Beach and write people citations for as if they're in a parking lot somewhere exposing themselves. And it's not helping the spirit of Aloha. And uh, it, it suggests that maybe Mr. Ross needs to um, reconsider his uh, his views. Uh, this is supposed to be a free country. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to say something about it. Aloha. All righty then. Want to share your thoughts on something you heard on our show? Call the Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka on Hawaii Island, providing facial, cosmetic, and reconstructive surgery and aesthetic services, including laser treatments, online at a-new-face.com. We crave connections. It's human nature to want to know what's happening in your community, in the news, and with each other. And we need those connections now more than ever. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio helps keep you connected, engaged, and enriched. Wherever you are, whatever's happening in the world, stay connected on the HPR app or ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. too hungry right now for today's backyard quiz we asked you about a beloved dessert only available at mcdonald's hawaii locations our mickey d's locations have some exclusive me- menu items that incorporate local culinary favorites they include taro pie simon bowls and a teriyaki burger known as the McTerry deluxe mcdonald's restaurants in our state also boast a menu item that no other state offers all of its restaurants in the United States served the crispy, deep-fried version of this dessert until 1992 when McDonald's made the decision to alter the recipe to a healthier, baked version. Hawaii residents weren't exactly thrilled and made their voices heard. If you were part of this movement, then you know Hawaii is the only state in the country where McDonald's serves fried apple pies. And lots of people knew and called us. But uh, our winner today is Greg from Honolulu, who hit the fastest fingers. 
That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, let us know. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you're familiar with local fashion designer Ann Namba, then this is the version of her that you're probably most used to. And Anja is wearing an origami top. So this is um, a free size and free, uh, free fitting, so it's a little asymmetrical. And it's got a little bit of black in there as a contrast. And paired up with our silk voucher tops. That was Namba emceeing a fashion show at her boutique in Kaka'ako. She's been in the industry for over 30 years, and in that time, she successfully carved out a niche in the fashion world with her distinct brand. She's designed clothes for legends like Aretha Franklin and Elizabeth Taylor and many others, which may lead you to be surprised by another one of her accomplishments, CrossFit Games athlete. <laughs> That was Namba in the gym, deadlifting 175 pounds several times. It's part of her training to compete in the CrossFit Games later this month. You may be familiar with CrossFit, the high-intensity exercise regimen, but if you're not familiar with the Games, it's the Olympics of their world. Athletes from around the globe compete for four months in a series of workouts culminating in the Games, where the winners earn the title fittest in the world. Namba is only one of two Hawaii-based athletes competing in Wisconsin this year. She'll be facing off against 19 other women in her age category. The Conversations' Russell Subiano sat down with her to find out how she went from fashion icon to competitive athlete. Were you always exercising in one form or another? How did you find CrossFit? Uh, no, I actually wasn't. You know, I sort of just dove into this whole career thing, and then I started having kids. And then it was on a, a family trip where my son, and, you know, I had my kids a little bit older, so my son went running up the stairs in, in when I was in Japan with him, and I literally physically could not catch him and catch up to him. I was out of breath. I was out of shape, and I just thought, you know, this isn't fair to my kids. You know, I had him when I was older, and it's just not fair to him. So I decided I needed to get in shape for him because it wasn't enough just to do it for me. And I started doing triathlon training because I sort of fell into it. You know, a friend said, oh, come check it out. And I did that for about five years. But the problem with that is, again, busy with work. It takes hours to get in a workout. And it just, I, I, it was really hard because I, I travel a lot with my business. So I kind of stopped that. And I had issues with my knees and tendonitis from too much swimming. And so they, you know, started to stop that. And then it was just by chance that my niece had said, oh, I'm going to go down, walk down to the end of the block and, and check out this CrossFit thing. And I had seen people running around holding balls and just thinking, oh, my God. So she was the first one to say, I'm going to explore this. So me and her mom then went down, and that's when it all started. We just fell in love with the whole thing. And what I really like about CrossFit is that in one hour, you get this really intense workout. And you don't have to spend hours and hours. And I've also discovered I am not an endurance athlete. So this it actually fits my physique much better just to do this one-hour intense workout. And that was seven years ago. My favorite part about CrossFit are the weights. I, I really enjoy yeah. you know, knowing that I'm strong enough to lift heavy weights. It makes me feel good. What's your favorite mm -hmm. part about CrossFit? Oh, weights also. Weights. My dad actually was a weight, Olympic weightlifting champion back in his day, tri-state champion back in his college days. And I think I just got that whole Namba, you know, gene where I just took to weights. And actually, one of the reasons I did continue with CrossFit was because, you know, I had gone and done a bone density scan and they said, you're, you know, you're, you're you need to start taking medication. You've got thinning bones. And I just didn't want to do that. I said, well, what can I do to naturally try and build up my bone density, especially at my age? And they had said, well, you can do over-the-counter, but you really have to do weight-bearing exercises. And so that's when I started doing weightlifting, you know, through CrossFit. And, you know, when I went back in for testing, they're like, 
you've raised it. I'm in the normal zone. So that was a really great side benefit to CrossFit. What's your snatch and your clean and jerk up to now? So my PR on my snatch was 95 and my, let's see, my clean and jerk was, I think, 135. And then my deadlift was at 275. Awesome. But that was a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> so you go to CrossFit mm-hmm. and you fall in love with it and you're having a good time. And I know the the workout part of it fits your schedule. Did the community have a have an effect on you as well? Oh, huge, huge. I still, um, some of my best buds are all my CrossFit buddies. And, you know, just the connections you make and just the, the community, the feeling of encouraging everyone and each other. You know, I just posted on social media about getting into the games and people are just going crazy and texting and commenting. And they're all just so elated for me because they know that I'm a pretty intense competitor and I've been going at it. But, you know, it, it, it takes much more than just hard work and dedication to get to the game. So there's a lot of luck involved. And, you know, I just got really, I got lucky as well, but love my community, love my friends. At what point in your CrossFit journey did you think to yourself, I, I might be able to make it to the games? You know, it was always sort of a pipe dream, and I dream big. I always have goals. I'm very goal-oriented, so it was sort of like I'm going to work towards this. And every time I reach it, the, the goal, then I have the next goal. So with this particular – and I've, I've, I've done the open, the qualifiers, for about maybe four times before. This particular time when I went into it, I had just come off – I had knee surgery. I had a torn ligament, and so I was on crutches for six weeks, and it was like a really – pretty major because I couldn't put any weight on my leg and my knee is weak and it still is. I'm not back. But, you know, I started training with Timo Kockelman and I have to say he's a wizard and just the way he modded things for me and made sure I didn't overdo it and just certain modifications that he knew would work certain certain things a certain way really helped me. I, I owe it to him. I at first said, you know, I'm going to do the open this year and I'm going to try and do it to RX or to the prescribed movement. That was my goal. Then when I did it, I'm like, hey, I was able to do it. And then it, and, and then the next thing was, oh, I'm going to try and make the top 10% so I can get into the qualifiers. Did that. Then I'm like, oh, okay, my next goal is I would like to be in the top 30. And then, boom, I got 22. <laughs> and then two people declined the game, so I'm going. <laughs> what was the reaction from your family? Oh, they're all, they're all like crazy they're like, wait, what? You're going to the games? And then first they thought that I was just going to attend. And then I'm like, no, I'm in it. <laughs> I'm competing. So my daughter is super bummed because she's taking the bar exam exactly at that time. So she cannot, can't go with me. But my son said he'd fly up and he's trying to rally some cousins to go up. But at this late date, because I was an alternate, I just got notified, you know, on the 1st. And, you know, the games are on the 27th. So a lot of things are booked up, flights, hotels. So it's not easy to get up there, but I'm trying to rally as many people as I can to go. <laughs> Who will you be representing when you go to the games? CrossFit I mean, Hawaii. CrossFit Hawaii, okay. And what are you looking forward to most when you land in Wisconsin and when you hear that first three, two, one go? Oh, my God. So I'm going to be so, so nervous, but I'm kind of going in with the attitude of just enjoy the moment, enjoy everything, have a lot of fun. And to try and take the pressure off me, I mean, I have my own personal competitive nature that I, I can't help. But, I mean, even when I do the open in my, you know, neighborhood box with all my friends and it's just us and it's just the three, two, one. God, your heart is just going like crazy and you're nervous and, and everything else. So I just can't imagine this is going to be through the roof being in the Coliseum, you know, uh, <laughs> with, you know. 19 other top, you know, women athletes in my age group. This is going to be insane. I just don't want to embarrass myself, but, you know, it's really, I don't care if I come in last. (laughs) I made it. So that's the main thing. What I love about the story is that it shows that you don't have to box yourself in. You don't have to be one thing or another thing, but you can be as many things as you want. From your perspective, what do you hope this shows to other people? You know, a lot of people, when they find out that I do CrossFit, they're going, oh, my God, that's that crazy thing where, you you know, you get hurt and 
you know, it's all those, you know, big jocks and everything else. And I'm like, no, not at all. In fact, you know, there are a lot of people that have injuries that do CrossFit because it helps them to rehabilitate. And it's also a lot about the community and it just gets you out there and gets you working. You know, through COVID and everything, a lot of people start doing home gyms and doing it on their own. I am the type of person where I need to be driven by actually having to make a certain class. Otherwise, I can get totally caught up in work and just like, ah, oh, I didn't have time. But, you know, if I know, oh, I signed up for the class, I'm going, that that will force me to do it. And then, you know, the other thing is I've tried doing it on my own as well. And it was like, oh, okay, do it for this long of a time. And I'm kind of like, ah, oh, that was long enough. So I really need to, to be in an environment where there are other people doing it because that helps to drive me to to work harder at this and to do it and be more consistent. So. So I fully encourage people to try it, even if they think, oh, no, I can't, because they're all levels doing it. Also, you don't need to say, well, no, I can't because I'm a this person or that person. I mean, I have people, you know, in my CrossFit gym that see me outside of work and they go, oh, my God, I didn't recognize you because, you know, they see me all dressed up. And I'm like, no, this is actually my normal look. I'm so excited for you, Anne, and I know you've been working on this for a few years. Good luck. I wish you the best. I'll be cheering for you. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm super, super excited. And, you know, this is just, just a bucket list item that I never thought I'd be able to check off. So here we go. And that was local fashion designer and CrossFit Games athlete Ann Nambo talking with our Russell Subiono. The CrossFit Games kick off July 27th in Madison, Wisconsin. Hawaii athlete Mary Schwing from CrossFit 808 will also be participating. And two Hawaii-born brothers living in Texas, Elijah and Ka'eo Subiono, our producer's nephews, will be competing in the team division. Imua. Well, we're out of time. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa will be in to take you into the weekend. Got some feedback, got questions about vaccines or anything else you may have heard on our air. Call the Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.